you know, the truths of that song, which I think we've sung that uh, fairly recently, the truth, truths of that song may be sung in any circumstance. And uh, I believe that I believe that as we have studied Jeremiah and as we've been looking at these psalms, I believe that I've learned more of what the Lord's intentions are in the midst of affliction. And not just a learning like I've learned some facts, but I understand maybe a bit better the whys of these kinds of times, the whys of lamentation and the beauty of the Lord's work amid times of lamentation. In some ways, it sort of fits maybe with my personality. I have always been a bit nauseated at the thought of being a pastor that's always like a cheerleader. Like my job is to get up here and just hype everybody up and make everybody real excited about the work of the Lord when deep down I know that there is a desperate emptiness that is in each one of us, even if it's just for seasons or if it's lasting or if it's because of your sin and unrepentance or whatever it is. I believe my job is to show you the goodness of God in those times. Sometimes I look at pastors and preachers and think, man, if I was just a little more like that, you know, and then the spirit quickens me because God has given me a ministry to fulfill that nobody else will fulfill. Nobody else can fulfill. God has given you a ministry to fulfill. You've been tailor made for that ministry. And so embrace that. I think that's what we see in these times of affliction, in these psalms. The psalmists realize again and again that God has them there for his good purposes, as painful as it may be, as long-lasting as it may be. He has his purposes in this. And today, maybe there's a bit of hope and joy that come from the, comes from the psalm. We'll be in Psalm 30 today. And the title of the sermon today is Light, Momentary Affliction. If you're familiar with scripture, you know that that is a phrase that Paul uses. When he's talking about all the things that he's endured and his sidekicks have endured for the sake of the gospel. And he mentions these things because in all of the suffering that they have endured, he says, this is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And I've made reference to this passage a couple of times as we've been in the Psalms. But see, Paul had the kind of eternal perspective that helped him to see his suffering, no matter how long it lasts, no matter how bad it was, no matter how deep it was, he always saw it as something that was momentary. Because he knew what was coming. Because he knew what Jesus had purchased at the cross. What we see in Psalm 30 today is a very similar type contrast. And I'm hoping that today we'll be able to turn your attention away from the temporal things, these momentary things, these light things, 
And you may be automatically thinking, my situation is not light. Pastor, who are you to tell me that this is light or momentary? And I would just tell you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, the word of God tells you that it is light and momentary. You just have yet to realize it. So we see some contrasts as Boyce writes about this psalm. There's some contrasts, and I want to follow that line of thinking. But to give you some review, some background of this text, what we have in Psalm 30 is it's written there. It says a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. And so this actually means a dedication for the house. And so it's taken two ways because David was not around to write a psalm that was for the dedication of the temple that was not given to him. That was not his job. So it was either a song that he wrote at the grounds where the temple would be constructed in the dedication of the temple, or it was a song that he wrote after the construction of his own house. So it could go either way there. It doesn't really matter as far as how we interpret the text, but the point of the the psalm here is a celebration of God's faithfulness to David. And I'm going to encourage you from this. God's faithfulness to David is evidence of his faithfulness to all his people. Before we get into it and read it, as we think about Psalms of Lament, as we think about Jeremiah, as we studied for several months and will return in the coming months, We're getting real-life practice in the midst of our circumstances right now when it comes to lamentation, when it comes to times of trouble, when it comes to fighting for faith in those difficult times. We're getting an opportunity to practice the psalms of lament, the psalms of crying out, the psalms of tested faith. And so the question is, will we be able to turn our minds Will we be able to set our eyes of faith on the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal, rather than these transient, visible things? So that's what Paul's counsel was. He said, we want to look at those things that are lasting, and what we see here is David turning his attention and turning our attention to what lasts. So join with me, Psalm 30. I will tell you before I read the text that this is going to be a two-parter. We're going to do two points today and two points next week. Psalm 30, join with me. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints, you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, 
I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray once more. Father, help us in understanding our feeble minds, our wandering hearts. Father, help us to see Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. Help us to know him better and be conformed to him. We pray in his name, amen. Light, momentary affliction. The theme this morning, our suffering pales in comparison to God's lasting comforts. Our suffering pales in comparison to God's lasting comforts. And what we see here, uh, it may loosely be tied together in this Psalm 30. I would say, though, there are snapshots or snippets of this lasting comfort that comes from God. So I want to give you four contrasts in light of what I said before. Four contrasts to today, to next week. From Verses 1 through 3, I want to give you the first one, aid over ailment. Aid over ailment. David seems to be recalling an occasion of serious illness here. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. You have brought my life out of, excuse me, my, up my soul from Sheol, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So commentators think that he's probably talking about something related to physical illness, serious illness. And as you read it here, you see his foes are lined up. His enemies are ready to put the nails in his coffin, but the Lord spares him. He was hanging on every breath of his fleeting life, teetering on the brink of death, but God drew him up. And that language, Boyce says, is like, a, like drawing a, 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 a water pail out of a well. You get the image, something deep and long, and the Lord drew him up out of death's pit when, apart from God, there was no hope at all. I think the contrast speaks clearly. God's rescue overpowers the grip of death. God's rescue overpowers the grip of death. Aid over ailment. The application here may be made to a number of troubles from debilitating spiritual depression to danger from enemies. But for now, I would like to stick with this idea of physical illness, serious illness. Just recently, I participated in my 30th funeral since I became the pastor of Cedarview Baptist Church. 
Many of those times, I felt the weight of offering words to people who were staring at their last few breaths. And I can tell you that there is a clear confidence, there's a a clear um, hope that you find in those who have the assurance of Jesus and those who don't. When I read Psalm 30, right here, I don't, I don't get the sense that David is fearful of death. But I look at some, even people who claim the faith, and, and they're looking at death, and they are utterly scared. They are frightened at what is to come because they do not have that confidence. When I read this, I don't get the sense that he is fearful of death, but he's convinced that there is more God-glorifying work to do. He believes that there is, there is work left. God, don't let, let it end here. I want to bring glory to your name. I want to speak of your goodness. This is kind of what he's expecting here. So his plea for healing, it isn't driven by fear of death, but it is driven by faith in God. And there is a big difference. The fact is that David died. Is it, is it just that David, when he got close to death and God saved his life, all those times that he experienced a victory, and then on that last one, when he actually died, then death just had its say, and, and David lost, and he was defeated. No. No, David was not fearful of death. I believe when it came time for him to die, he was glad to enter into his eternal rest. But at this point, he was believing that God had work for him to do. But on this, I would say we have an ungodly fear of death in our society, especially Christians. We get so focused on the ailment. Oh, it's going to be the end of me. It's going to, it's going to end my life. All the pleasures that I've enjoyed here are going to be over. This is the end I'm not sure about what's next, but this is the end. And we fear, and we let that fear drive us. We don't like to talk about death. We do our very best to avoid it, don't we? And we spend fortunes on delaying it. You know, writing about the ICU, the intensive care unit in hospitals, where we segregate those who are closest to death, Matt McCullough says this. He says, if the ICU represents our all-out attempt to beat back death, it is also, a sen- in a sense, a monument to death's power. He says, the fact that we have an ICU says death has a lot of power. He says, here, modern medicine is to death what a, forgive me for the illustration, what a comb-over is to a balding scalp. We may shield the reality for a time, but at some point the comb-over is no more than a monument to the power of baldness. He says, the harder we try, the more obvious our weakness and the more obvious death's power. But we view death as the end of our pleasure. 
we view death as sort of the period to everything that we're able to enjoy. And so we try to squeeze every bit of pleasure out of this life, knowing that death is coming for us. And when it comes, we have this sense of defeat. This is a godless understanding of death. Rather than fear, we are a people with faith in the face of death. How? Because death itself has become a tool for transformative glory through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has beaten death into submission and made it serve his purposes. I recently talked with a believer whose life was saved from death in the ICU of all places. You know what she said? She said, I felt like the doctors and the nurses and the machines temporarily stole from me. They robbed from me my eternal joys. And she was mad. That's the perspective of a believer. It was said of another believing woman who did recently pass from this life that when she died, she had a bit of a smile on her face. You know, I think when we consider how the ailments amount to very little when compared to the eternal life-granting aid of God, when we consider that, we ought to smile too, shouldn't we? Not fear, but faith. God's aid makes our ailment nothing. He's the one who saves. He's the one who rescues. First contrast, aid over ailment. Second contrast, favor over fury. Verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. A writer, Dixon, here says, Dwelling a while upon the consideration of mercies unto us, bringeth with it rejoicing in God and a singing disposition. Whereunto, when we are once awakened and warned, we will think that one mouth to praise God is too little. So David right here, right here invites us into singing the praises of God, giving thanks to his holy name. He says, you saints, join me in this. You saints, praise God and give thanks. So David invites us in right here. You know, I kind of get the picture in my mind of like when uh, you've been to a concert, right? You know, and the singer at the concert takes their microphone and they stop singing into the microphone and they hold it out to the crowd, right? They hold it out to the crowd as if to say, hey, you guys know the words, take over and start singing the song. You sing this one 
because you know this one. That's what David's saying right here. This is not just my experience, David is saying, but you know this about God. You know this truth about God, that you know about his anger. You know about his grace. You know about his favor for a lifetime. You know about the joy that comes in the morning and does not end. You sing this one because you know the words. I wish I had Raul with us today because I'd preach a little more right here. But you know, believer, you do know those words, don't you? You know the song. You know, you know how it goes. You can speak. You can sing of how his anger was for a moment. You know what the affliction was like for a night. You know what it was like to endure that loss. You know what it was like. To suffer in that way? You know what it was like. And yet, when you think about his goodness, when you think about the joy that came in the morning, you remember that season was short, it was light, it was momentary, it was for a night. He says here, sing praise. Sing praise. The truth sung here by David welcomed the reverberation of the saints throughout history because the God who is faithful to David is the same God who is faithful to us. Sing praise, and he says, give thanks. His holy name contains the unsearchable and inexhaustible beauty of his character and everything, yes, everything about him deserves our thanksgiving. His anger? Yes. His grace? Yes. Favor over fury. Let's dig into this a little more. I would tell you, we need to recognize that sin angers God. Sin angers God. To the unbeliever, first, I would tell you that you need to know that your Sin stands over you in condemnation, and God, who is holy, will send the just punishment upon you for it. Psalm 7, 11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day. Really, it's, it's not anger. This is why I gave the term fury, also because there's an F. Fury. It's not, it's not just anger. It is, it is fury. It is white hot. He hates it. One writer says here, Were the Lord not graciously slow to manifest his anger fully, no sinner could live even for a second. But God's anger is maybe postponed, if we could say it that way. Because of his patience, because he has said he is slow to anger, but do not miss the truth that he is definitely angry about sin. And the promise from the rest of this verse can be yours through repentance and faith. Otherwise, apart from Christ, the night of weeping will give way to an eternal 
endless darkness and despair. There is no favor ahead for you, unbeliever. There is no lasting joy for you when the morning comes. Regarding these couple of verses here, most commentators refer to a particular occasion in the kingship of David where he provoked God to anger. You may remember from 2 Samuel chapter 24, David took a census. He did it in his unbelief. He did it because he wanted to measure just how strong he actually was when God had said, you don't need to do that. And even his counselor said, don't do this because you're going to make God mad. But he did it anyway. And then the prophet came to him and said, because you have done this, here are your options. And God laid out three options for judgment upon David, upon the people. And as he heard his options... He responded saying in 2 Samuel 24, 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So instead of enduring the pursuit of his enemies, instead of enduring a three-year famine, he chose to endure three days of pestilence. And 70,000 people lost their lives because of David's disobedience. Sin angers God. A believer, you may be convinced like, well, I'm not David, I'm not the king, and my sin doesn't, it doesn't have an impact like that. I would caution you, As in the case of David, God's anger towards sin will often lead to visible consequences. So not only do we grieve the Holy Spirit when we commit sin, and that ought to be enough for us to fight sin and hate sin, but we also welcome the chastening hand of God. And maybe you can even recall a time in your life where your rebellion led you to a place where God's discipline became obvious. And for a night, you wept over your sin and its consequences. But because of his goodness, because he is a merciful God, joy came in the morning. Sin angers God, but God's forgiveness, God's favor lasts. David was a man who committed serious sins. I know you recall. We often quote the text that says that David was a man after God's own heart. But how is this possible? Knowing his sin, how is this possible? What's the difference? I haven't done heinous things like David, that you may say that. How is it possible that he is a man after God's own heart? It's because David was a man who was quick to repent. When he led selfishly, he owned up to it. 
When he acted unrighteously, he quickly confessed it. And as we have seen, he acknowledged his sin in the census, even asking the Lord to pour out his judgment upon him and the king's household instead of all these people who really had nothing to do with his sin. But we also saw it when David was confronted about his sin against God regarding Uriah and Bathsheba. When he was confronted, he broke down in confession and repentance. He didn't make light of it. He didn't claim, well, I'm the king. I get to do whatever I want to do. He didn't deny it. He acknowledged it. He confessed it. He repented. He sought the forgiveness of God. And he knew that lasting forgiveness. He knew the favor of God. I think of 1 John 1 8 in light of this text, which says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now I'm convinced that that is not just a general denial of sin. It's not just generally, well, you know, I'm not really a sinner. That's not what it's talking about, I don't think. I believe it's a denial of specific sins. Because the following verses don't seem to speak of confession in general. They seem to speak of confession of specific offenses. So if I were to ask, if, if we were to ask, have you committed sin? We would say, of course, yeah. Most of us in the church especially, yeah, no problem. I have committed sin. But if we were to ask, what sin are you hiding in your heart? the answers might be a bit more hesitant. But I would tell you that the promise is there for us in Psalm 30. The promise is there for us. If you want to harbor that sin, if you want to hang on to your sin, then guess what? You can endure more and more Conviction, probably the hardening of your heart. Eventually, you can endure the nights of weeping. You can endure the Lord's anger against that sin all you want, but the promise is there for us if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And so what's holding us back from enduring a night, a night of weeping? so that we can enjoy the lasting joy of God's forgiveness. God's fury has come to an end because of Jesus. Now his forgiveness is our song forever. Favor over fury. Aid over ailment. I would encourage you, as we conclude this morning and pick back up again next week, I would encourage you to take a step back and look at these things with an eternal perspective. Are you able to see your circumstances as light, momentary affliction because of the eternal weight that is being prepared? Are you able to focus on God's salvation which in the grand scheme of things is quick. God's salvation, which is sure, 
God's salvation, which, as we sang earlier, is coming, if it hasn't already come for you in various ways, would you be able to set your mind on the things that are eternal, the things that are unseen, rather than letting the things that are seen, the things that are temporal, control you and control your life? Those things that will drag you down to the pit. This morning, if you do not know Jesus, as we said before, if if you're coming to the knowledge of your sin, that, that anger is going to last. That feeling of being crushed is going to last until you give yourself to Jesus. Believer, what sin do you harbor? What sin is dragging you down? Confess and repent and be restored today because of Jesus' work. Pray with me. Father, we exalt your holy name